1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. Thank you. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Well, I want you to imagine it's Monday morning. Uh, you're off work. You're walking down the parade. And you pass a rep for the Battersea Cat and Dogs Home. And there they are, explaining to you the real need, the, the urgent need to care for abandoned animals. What they're asking for isn't too onerous. They don't need you to actually adopt a cat or a dog. You don't need to go down to the headquarters in London. All they're asking for is that you would join them and become a supporter with them by making a gift every month. So you sign up. You head into the priors for coffee. And there you meet the brown owl from the local brownies group. It's your day for all the volunteers in and around the town. Uh, but brown owl's pitch is very different. The brownies don't need your money as much as they need your time. And what they're really looking for are people who would have a passion to spend time with the young girls in their troop who are all full of adventure and excitement and on a Thursday evening need some people to help them have a good evening. Now, you can decide whether you're brave enough for that one. Uh, but then on Saturday, you head to the Crofts, which, if you don't know, is nearby to here. It's the home of the old Lemingtonians. And as a supporter of the local rugby team, there isn't anything that's really required of you during the week. Uh, you don't have to pay. You just get to turn up, get to that sideline, and you can cheer on the gold and blue as they do their very best week after week. Battersea, the Brownies, and the old Lemingtonians. Three very different clubs that ask very different things of their supporters. I wonder which 
you think is most like church membership. I wonder whether any of those different ways of being connected to one another is how you think of being connected as a Christian family. Perhaps you think of church as a good thing to support, like the Battersea Home. But you don't need to perhaps be personally invested quite so much. Or maybe you think of church a bit like the Brownies in the sense that we get together to volunteer lots of time to enable other people to have a good time. Maybe you think of it more like being a supporter of the old Lemingtonians. Once a week, as often as you're able, you come together and you watch as a few people at the front pour out their heart and soul. Is that what being a member of a church is like? Is it an optional extra for the super keen Christians? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. What does the Bible teach us about belonging and committing to the life of a local church? If you weren't with us last week, we've begun a new series thinking about life in the local church. And the way that we're going to do that is working through our church covenant, a a, a promise, group of promises that we make together as we become members in a local church. And last week we saw that the church is made up of sinners like us, who have been saved personally by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not an alleluia kind of church, but that should prompt in our hearts an alleluia that I am saved. And it's a personal thing. But as we saw last week, it's also an amazing reminder that the New Testament community is the fulfillment of all that the old covenant was pointing towards. That's what it means to be in the new covenant community. This week, we're going to focus on the next statement. As those who've been saved by personal faith in Christ, we recognize that he has providentially brought us to this church family and freely commit ourselves to him and to one another. What does it mean to freely commit ourselves to one another. Is church membership even a biblical idea? Wouldn't surprise you to know that I get asked that question quite a lot. And if you're thinking Battersea, Brownies, or the old Lemingtonians, the answer's no. That idea of membership being an optional extra that you could choose if you're really keen, but you don't really need to because life's fine without it, that is not a biblical idea of membership. What you see all the way through the Bible, here's the big idea, is that being committed to a local church is God's plan and provision for all of us to become more like Jesus, to serve the world, and to bring glory to God. That's a very wordy idea. I'm sorry. (laughs) But that is the big idea, and it's too big an idea for us to try and deal with everything this morning. What we're going to focus on this morning is membership being God's plan and provision. I want all of us to understand that. Perhaps you've been in our church family for a long time, and you've got lots of ideas about membership. But if somebody were to ask you, what does the Bible say about membership? Perhaps it would be helpful to have a refresher. Perhaps some of you are starting to come to us regularly, and you've come from a different church. 
Maybe that's been a great blessing and you're wondering about becoming a part of this church. Maybe that's been a hard thing and you're trying to work out, well, what does it really mean to be part of a local church? I hope what we're going to do today is going to serve all of us so that in the weeks to come, we can then flesh out the implications, the practicalities, the how do we become more like Jesus, serve the world and glorify God. Now to build that foundation this morning, we're going to look at three key principles. Membership is foundational to Jesus' plan for the church. Membership is assumed all the way through the New Testament. And membership explains the Bible's description of the church. So let's start by looking at how membership is foundational to Jesus' plan for the church. It might surprise you to know that Jesus doesn't talk about the church, in a narrow sense, very much at all. If you look all the way through the Gospels, the emphasis on the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ is on the kingdom of God. His focus is on the rule and the reign of God, both in this life and in that growing sense as he is preparing his kingdom for the new heavens and the new earth. So if you look at Matthew's Gospel on its own, Jesus mentions kingdom 49 times. In one gospel. But if you look at all four gospels, Jesus only refers to church, ecclesia, twice. Both of them are in Matthew's gospel. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, let's look at the first one in Matthew 16, which is a passage, if you're with us on Wednesday for the week of prayer, we looked at briefly. It's a famous passage, if you're familiar with the gospel of Matthew, and in the way that Jesus speaks to the disciples and says, Who do other people say that I am? But then more specifically, he says to all the disciples, who do you say that I am? And there in verse 16, Peter answered personally, but also on behalf of all of the disciples, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now there is all sorts of detail in that text that, Lord willing, we will get into when we do a sermon series in Matthew. What I want you to focus on this morning is what Jesus says about the church. It's talking about the universal church. Not one particular church, but the church as God sees it. Of all people in all times and all places. And how will he build it? He'll build it on the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Not not on Peter himself, as the Roman Catholics would believe, but on Peter's confession It is a person making the confession that Jesus is the son of the living God. And then verse 19, Jesus gives Peter and the apostles what he calls the keys of the kingdom. In other words, he gives them the same authority that he's just exercised in relation to Peter. He gives them the same responsibility to assess that confession that somebody properly understands who the Lord Jesus Christ is. 
they are representatives of God on earth to affirm true believers. That's Matthew 16. Now, if you flick over the page to Matthew 18, you see the second time that Jesus uses the word church. And this time, the context is discipline. Discipline that's needed when someone's life is no longer being lived in a, a consistent way with their profession. They're saying that they're a Christian and that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to follow him. But actually, you look at their lives, and not only are they failing to do that, but the discipline issue is that they're not repenting of it. Church is not made up of sinless people. Church is made up of sinful people who are becoming more godly, who are repentant people. And that's what this pattern for discipline is showing us there in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen to you, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever Here's the language again. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that's a really somber passage that we're going to look at in more detail later in this series when we think about discipline. What we need to see this morning is what Jesus says about who exercises the keys of the kingdom. Unlike chapter 16, Jesus isn't referring to the universal church here. He's thinking about a specific local church, one that is wrestling with not just a sinful Christian, because all of us are Christians struggling with our sin, but one who refuses to repent of their struggle in sin. And so he works through the the private steps that you're to take to try and bring that person to repentance, but they're still not heeded. So then the person has to be brought before the church, and it's through the elders and the members of the local church that they're Faith is examined in light of their life. Jesus is entrusting that same judgment from Matthew 16 that is done on behalf of heaven to the local church in Matthew 18. Do you see how important Jesus says the local church is? Jonathan Lehman helpfully describes all of this as a local church being like an embassy. There aren't many in the world that look quite as swanky as the U.S. Embassy in London. I have a terrifying story about going to the U.S. Embassy in the previous building, but you can ask me about that afterwards if you like. But some of them are really, really enormous and special, and their purpose is to represent the the people of one nation as they reside in another, to protect them and enable them to be safe citizens of, in this case, the United States, whilst they live in the U.K. Now, Jonathan's an American. And while he was a student, he spent some time in Belgium. While he was in Belgium, his U.S. passport expired. Hands up if you've ever been in a foreign country and realized that your passport's expired. No? Praise God for that. I imagine that would be quite terrifying. So what Jonathan does is he goes to the U.S. embassy in Belgium because he can't prove by himself that he's an American citizen. It doesn't, he can't be made an American citizen by the embassy, but what they can do is affirm that he is 
an American citizen. That's what they did. They gave him a new passport so that he could continue with his stay in Belgium. But now he's got the documentation that shows he's entitled to the rights and the benefits of being a U.S. citizen. That's what Jesus is describing here, in a sense, of part of what it means to be a local church. And his vision of what the local church is is incredible. It's his church. It's not ours. It's his power that is building his church. And because it's his power, it can defeat the power of hell. He builds it by bringing men and women and boys and girls to personally trust in him. To be able to confess that Jesus is the Messiah and the son of the living God. But for all of that that Jesus Christ and he alone does, he entrusts to local churches this enormous responsibility of affirming the profession and of holding accountable one another as Christians. Not that the church makes anybody a Christian, just like the embassy doesn't make Jonathan an American. But it affirms who you are. That's what it means to bind and loose on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the enormous privileges and responsibility that are all of ours as members of Emmanuel Church? We have the responsibility, Jesus tells us, on behalf of heaven to affirm those whose profession shows that they have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they live out their lives in accordance with that profession, their lives showing it to be true, they are being prepared for glory. That's how important it is as a local church family to affirm and be able to say that this person is a member of the kingdom of God. Membership is foundational to Jesus' plan for the church. But secondly, membership is assumed throughout the New Testament. And by that, what I mean is, it's very hard to make sense of much of what the New Testament teaches if you don't believe that membership is a biblical idea. Now, here are three particular ways to see that. The first one, perhaps, in one sense, the least important in some ways, is that membership records church growth. Just a small reminder of something going on here. So last week we saw in Acts 2 that about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That record-keeping reappears later in the chapter, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And you see it again in Acts 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared Join them, meaning there's a real sense of who's in this church and who's not in this church. Even though they were highly regarded by the people, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Membership records church growth. Maybe more importantly, number two, membership is the only way church life as God designed it can function. Without a a defined group of people who've committed to one another, elders can't pastor. In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says to them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. 
Peter picks up the same responsibility in his first letter. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Shepherds can't shepherd if they don't know which sheep are theirs. You speak to Kieran and the wheat class. Being a shepherd is hard enough as it is. Imagine not knowing whether the 200 sheep on the other hill, on the other side of the valley, are also your responsibility, and, and the 300 that have just disappeared somewhere else over the mountainside, are they your responsibility as well? Shepherds need to know which sheep are theirs in order to shepherd. The same is true for elders. Elders can't pastor unless they know which specific believers they're responsible for. But it's not just the elders. It is equally all of us as members. The writer to the Hebrews commands all believers, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. If you're not committed to a local church, how do you submit to its leaders? And how can their leaders then lovingly exercise that under-shepherding care for your souls, for which they will be accountable before God? Membership is the only way church life, as God designed it, can function. Thirdly, membership is assumed all the way through the New Testament because church discipline can't function without it. Now, please don't mishear me. What I'm not saying here is that what is important is that the membership list is tidy and neat. That's not what we're talking about. Church discipline is the means by which God not only protects the witness of the church, but also helps professing Christians struggling with their sin, refusing to repent, to see how serious sin is and to see the need of repenting. So when we say that church discipline is important, it's not about beating one another with a stick. It's about seeing how urgent it is that all of us live lives under God's rule as we seek to bring him glory. It's about being able as a church family to say to one another, like the embassy, this man, woman, is a representative of Jesus. That's why it matters. And we've seen what Jesus has said in Matthew 18. Paul applies the same principle through his letters. He's going to tell us, um, and we're going to work through this as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, about all sorts of problems that are going on in Corinth. And in the first letter that he writes, one of the problems is a man committing adultery. Paul is super clear about how the church need to respond. And the last couple of verses of chapter 5, Paul writes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. There's this clear distinction between those who are inside the church and those who are outside. And those who are inside, who have covenanted, who have committed to one another, are to do this work where sin is discovered and not repented for in order to both protect the reputation of God's name 
and to bring that person back to repentance and saving faith. And if you know the story of 2 Corinthians, you know that in God's grace, that is exactly what happened to this man. Here he is, living in sin, confronted by the church, who discipline him, and then in wonderful, wonderful ways, you read by the time you get to the second letter to the Corinthians, that he's responded to that discipline exactly as God intended and has repented and has been brought back. And then you get to 2 Corinthians 2, and now Paul says the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Meaning the discipline has served its purpose. Welcome this brother back. But do you see what's assumed? There's a majority. (laughs) Those of you who are better at maths than me will know you can't have a majority unless you've got a definite number to start with. Church discipline It assumes that there is a defined group of brothers and sisters who are bonded together for the purpose not only of protecting the honor of God's name in the nations, but of ensuring that as we grow as Christians, we continue to repent when we sin. If we don't repent, we're disciplined. And Lord willing, that discipline will then lead to repentance. Throughout the whole of the New Testament, membership is an assumed part of the local church. In growth, in the whole of church body life, and in discipline. But thirdly and finally, membership explains the Bible's descriptions of the church. You read through your Bible as I do, there are rich and encouraging metaphors of what it means to belong to a local church. There's all sorts of different ones. You've got the church described as the bride of Christ. You've got the church described as as branches connected to the vine. You've got the church described as an olive tree. But the two I want to focus on this morning show us how precious it is to be committed to one another. You think of everything we've looked at already this morning. What we've seen is that membership is necessary. It's necessary because it's part of God's plan and provision for us. It's how we function as a church. But if that's all God had given us, we could approach membership the same way we approach lots of stuff in life. It's just another tick box. Become a Christian, tick. Become a church member, tick. Job done, move on. But you look at how the Bible describes church life. And we can't have that attitude towards each other. Our reading from 1 Corinthians reminded us that the local church is a body. A body, the body of Christ made up of of members because God never intended Christians to be isolated and independent from one another. Just like you wouldn't expect to have, well, you can't have (laughs) A healthy arm or or ear or leg that's just lying on the floor by itself. That's not right. It's not how God intended the body to function. In the same way, it's not how God intended the Christian to function. In fact, he tells us there in verse 21 that the question of all of this interconnectedness is is a question of need. We can't say to anybody else in the church family, I don't need you. Meaning the flip side being, I do need you. The assumption in membership is that we need one another. We are interdependent, so much so that you drop down to verse 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part's honored, every part rejoices with it. That's talking about a lot more 
than just having your name formally attached to the membership role of one particular church. It's talking about bearing each other's burdens. It's talking about caring for one another when it hurts. The church is like a body, but secondly, it's also a family. 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 4 describe the church as God's household, or another description of the family. Just think about your family for a minute. All of you will have birth certificates. Many of you will have passports. They are legally important documents that prove you're part of that family. And they they really do matter. But what is it that makes family life precious? It's not the piece of paper, necessarily. It's doing life together. It's going through the joys and the tears. It is sustaining and supporting each other through the challenging times and through the times of celebration. It's doing all of that together because you love and care for one another as a family. And that is exactly the same as what is being described here. That the, every part of these metaphors show us that we need to change the way we think about the local church. And the more I've reflected on, on these metaphors, this body-family language this week, the more I've been struck by the wisdom of God in rescuing us from that tick-box way of thinking. All of us like life to be simplified. And wouldn't it be so easy if all we needed to do as Christians is to sign up to a local church and know that job is done? But that's not what we're called to do as Christians. You can't be part of a body and not care if another part of the body is hurting. There's no point in having a healthy bicep if your nose is broken and your toes infected and other parts are hurting so much that that controlling sense isn't, oh, the bicep's fine. It's it's hurts. And God has so shaped the way that we think about the church family that it's not just a technical association that you volunteer for if you're kind of committed to that kind of thing. It's a this is who I am. I'm a blood-bought brother and sister of God, a child of God who, who are united with this body and family such that their joy is my joy. Their sorrow is my sorrow. And life is to be done together. Now, over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to see how important that is. God willing, we're going to see how necessary it is as a membership to help one another become more like Jesus and to serve the world and to glorify God. But what I want us to close on this morning is whether you and me have that biblical vision of what it means to be a member of the local church. It's not about volunteering for a group that you can be a part of if you want to, like Battersea, the Brownies, or the Old Lemingtonians. It's God's plan and provision for the Christian life. It's 
part of the way that he ensures that we continue to grow in a way that brings him glory, that encourages each other when things are hard, that is committed to one another when things are difficult. You think about all the different ways that you love people in life. Some of that's spontaneous. Of course it is. But so much of it comes out of that committed relationship that you have. That's how the Bible describes the local church. And I think as we go through this series, one of my great prayers myself is that membership would become more meaningful for me. And the way that I think of how I use my time and my treasure, my money and my talents, my gifts. Every part of my life isn't to be viewed as a, well, my personal spiritual relationship with God right now is fine, so church is good. (laughs) I need to think, well, If the Lord has blessed me with a season of spiritual blessing, how do I use that to minister to others who are going through a season of challenge? If you're going through a season of challenge, the way we're to see the gift of membership is to see that you don't go through that alone. And as you reach out to your church family, you're not reaching out to friends who you think, well, they turn up at church on Sunday. I wonder if they'll be helpful and pray for me or come alongside me. You're coming to people who are committed to one another, such that my problem, your problem, is our problem. Not to say there's not a place for discernment about how you share things, of course there is, but we don't do the Christian life alone. It's one of the great blessings that we are going to pick up as we come around the Lord's Supper. This is our family meal. This is where we together remind ourselves of what we've seen, that The grace that has brought us into the church family is what holds us together as brothers and sisters. Like an embassy, we are affirming one another's testimony. And for any who have sinned this week, you don't come to church and think, I must be out. You repent and find forgiveness in the same grace that brought you in.